Welcome to the History of the Batman with London, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles in Hollywood, California. This is where we relive the defining moments of one of the most iconic figures in comic art and literature, the Batman. My name is Adam Silverstein, and as always, I am joined by London. History of the Batman with London is produced and engineered by Mason Booker. London, how you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful Wednesday, comic book Wednesday, being recorded another day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've got a very special guest today, don't we? Yes, we do. So we'd like all our Gothamites to give a warm welcome to Dr. Andrea Letamendi. Hi, guys. Hey. <laughs> Hello, Gotham girls and boys. There you go. So, Drea, because yes. I've already feel close enough that I can say that. And uh, <laughs> you don't, I, it's okay that I don't call you doctor? It's totally fine. Okay. So, you are a host, among many things, but you are a host of a podcast dedicated to the observation and clinical analysis of the characters in Batman the Animated Series. Yes. That is very specific. It is, is so specific. It is a podcast <laughs> all about one show, Batman the Animated Series, and all about one topic, psychological science. So my job as the co-host is to lift out the psychology that's in each episode of the classic, the wonderful, the amazing, I would say the best uh, presentation of Batman uh, and and basically analyze the characters, the stories, the relationships, and do my best to talk about theory, research, um, clinical analysis, mental health illness, treatments, anything that falls under psychological science. Um, I'll do my best to kind of bring that out of the episode and to really talk about it using the world of Batman uh, as as my medium. Wow. That's crazy. That is, but that's it is crazy. awesome. And there's so much love behind the animated series that's it has a huge fan base. So I'm sure people who come across your show, I'm sure they love it and they get to learn something, which is what we're all about on History of the Batman is talking about Batman and everyone learning more about this character and, and we talked about it before the show but you can dive into Batman and on so many levels <laughs> and I'm and I've listened to many of the shows on the arc obsession which I do love and I definitely recommend it and you get into some really deep stuff with this character and I think that's a good thing about Batman is even though he's a comic book character you can relate to him on your own personal level yeah absolutely I think that with the animated series at the surface level Sometimes people will, um, you know, find it to be superficial or find it to be just kind of like a kid's show. Right. So it's really, actually, I'm always surprised at just how deep it goes and how many layers there are and how much science and psychology is in that show. Um, I credit all of those writers and even, you know, anything to the music, to the animation, to um, the work that that really went into that show to to bring these really rich characters to life. So yeah. a few things before we get started. Uh, I'd like to lay a little foundation here. So first of all, 
you're a doctor? How, how is this possible? Tell me your qualifications because we're Why? about to talk to some Gothamites here. And they might be like, okay, you are who? You're just talking about the psychology. Show me yeah. your qualifications. That actually, I'm, I'm really glad that you bring that up because there are, I guess there are lots of reasons why folks who don't have licenses or degrees or credentials would, would talk about comics and would talk about um, these themes. So I appreciate that question. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm licensed in the state of California where... We reside. We do. Yes. Um, <laughs> and my, actually, my training is from, um, I'm, I'm going to try to give you the short version because we could be here for a long time. <laughs> I've been in school longer than I've been doing anything else. So I wow. will say this. I got my PhD in clinical psychology from UCSD. I did my internship at the West Los Angeles VA hospital, worked a lot with veterans and soldiers. And that is where... I drew upon my experience as a comic book reader and fan, and especially drew upon my experience, uh, my relationship with Batman and Batman characters. And uh, thereafter, I had various research roles, and now I'm the director of clinical training at a children's mental health agency by day. Mm. And... (laughs) By night, I do fun podcasts with you guys <laughs> and uh, and the Arkham Sessions, and I write occasionally for um, for some websites. Comics Alliance was a site I used to write for. I've written for The Guardian. I've appeared on various uh, programs. So, Had a um, TED Talk? I did you? have it. I will say that if anyone wants to really know the story of how Batman brought me to my career for real, like real talk... They can watch my TED Talk. Uh, it's uh, The Psychology of Superheroes. And it is my personal story about sort of hiding from this fandom of ours and, and trying to be secretive about it. Because as I grew older, I realized that, I don't know, maybe people wouldn't take me seriously. Maybe I would never get my degree. Would I get a job? All these sorts of questions that I had. And, and so I won't give the ending away. Um, obviously, I have a, a, a career, but uh, the TED Talk goes through some of those anxieties and worries and what's called imposter syndrome. And specifically, I point to Batman as being the golden thread that takes me through my career. So if, if folks want to learn more about that, it's uh, it's online on YouTube. Wow. Wow. I want to learn about that now. (laughs) Can we pause the podcast and just watch it together? Well, I'm something I'm very proud of, and I I think this is still true, but I believe it's the only TED Talk with a Batman uh, costume in it, a Batman in Mm. the actual TED Talk. So... Uh, look for that. That's awesome. <laughs> and then real quick, we'll obviously ask you at the end, but the Arkham Sessions, where can people find that? Where is that available? The best way to find it is on my website, underthemaskonline.com, and it's also hosted by Fanboy Comics, uh, so folks can find it there as well. Nice. Well, thanks for coming today. Uh I know I'm excited about it, but I know London is especially excited because you two have a major connection in that you both love the animated series. Yes, the animated series is my personal favorite as well. And uh, like I said 
to you earlier. Um, I first started watching the 66 show, but then I discovered the animated series. And for me, uh, it was the episode Bane. And that was the episode that made me kind of get into comics because I wanted to learn more about Bane because I thought he was amazing. Wow. And so I started, my first book was reading Batman Nightfall. And I read 497, The Broken Bat, and that kind of jumpstart my love for comic book art and reading comics. And I've been doing it ever since. And I studied comic book art in, in college. And yeah, I've, I've loved it. And yeah, the animated series is great. And, it, and, I, and like you said, a lot of people take it more like superficial because it's animation and people don't think you can get that deep with characters and a cartoon. But the animated series, like I'm sure you've talked about a lot of times, it was ahead of its time in a sense. And that's one of the reasons why its nostalgia has just stayed with so many people. And we don't see exactly that type of cartoon anymore, at least right now. Yeah. And people want that back. And although I'm all for change and different interpretations and looking at Batman in all different styles and lights, the animated series definitely brought a lot of now signature characters back from obscurity and really made them popular for all ages, it seems like. So, yes, I love the animated series. <laughs> so I was really excited to start listening to your podcast and know that you you love it too. Um, out of all of the shows and comics and movies, what drew you to the animated series that I'm, you wanted to focus on that for the show and not another form? For So for the, for the Arkham Sessions Yes, for the Arkham podcast. Sessions, yes. It mainly came out of um, my incessant uh, chatter and discussion about Batman in the animated series and psychology related to it. So it, it, the the podcast really became sort of like um, an idea that instead of just talking about this so much, why not just you know do that in front of a microphone and invite other people to join you in this conversation since um, clearly I had a passion for it and I was talking about it so much. But um, in particular, I was asked to uh, to be on this documentary called Necessary Evil, um, Supervillains of DC Comics, yes. I think is the full title. Necessary Evil, Supervillains of DC Comics, which Warner Brothers released, I believe, in 2014. And so when I was brought in for the interview, we recorded a couple of hours just talking about all sorts of characters and villains and when the film came out um, my current co-host turned to me and said like all of your comments that ended up in this in this documentary are all about the animated series like when they talk about the animated series you show up <laughs> um, and that is probably that was the most fun I ever had um, Scott Snyder's in that, Paul Dini's in that, Jim Lee's in that, like all these amazing Batman artists and creators and, and writers are in that. So um, so it, it really, after that was released, it, it really kind of um, sparked this idea, like let's just keep talking about the animated series. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So was there other Batman incarnations that you were attracted to or... You know, because you, you, you picked that one, right? Yes. But is there other ones that you like or that you can delve into? Is, or you pretty much restricted yourself just to the animated That's series? That's a great question. We know that 
there's there will be. I love be... when you say that. When <laughs> Keep on doing it, okay? <laughs> that even, is a wonderful, amazing, great question. Even if they're question. not, just please help me out. Thank you. Well, the thing about selecting a show, uh, one that has ended for a podcast, is that you know that, that the podcast will end, essentially. And everything that we've created around the Arkham Sessions is really focused on the animated series. Occasionally, we will do like a special episode where we'll um, we'll analyze a film. So we've done the animated film Assault on Arkham. We for Christmas we did a um, a special episode on Batman Returns, which of course is a live action film. Um, so we will deviate on rare occasion, but the focus is on the animated series. I would like, I, I, there's this hope that after we're done, we will move on. Actually, Bane is our next episode. So really? when you said that, I was so excited. <laughs> we're going to cover Bane very yes. soon. Yes. Um, but we'd like to keep the show going. And we've asked our listeners, what would you like us to analyze and talk about? Would we move on to, um, you know, another animated show that folks are, you know, are really interested in? Would we move to um, films? Would we just do sort of, what's current day or modern you know suicide squad will come out and we'll talk about that so so there are lots of options and and that's why your question is a great question because i think that i can't fully answer the direction that we'll go in because there is so much that that we're excited about um but certainly when i talk about the animated series the reason it's so important to me is that it was my first um you know my first exposure to batman and it was my gateway to comics. I didn't read comics. I, I was watching the animated series after school. And I believe I was 12 or 13. I was so fascinated with it that I started to visit comic book shops and buy mm. Batman comics. And so it was a wonderful gateway to this larger, bigger world. So the first comic you purchased was Batman on your own? On my, Yes. And most, most of the comics I purchased were you mean on my own like like when you you saved your money yes to buy a comic <laughs> and it was based off of your love of the animated series so you bought a batman yes i will say that i had been reading like archie digest comics okay. but i didn't really like that those weren't comics to me those were i mean i realize now those are obviously comics but i didn't realize there's this whole world of superhero comics and so the animated series really opened that world to me, and that's where my obsession really was uh, honed in on Batman. Wow. Nice. Got it. So, nice. London, you've got a plan for us today, don't you? I do, because there's so much we could talk about with this topic, but... I, like, I... I want to get into your love for Star Wars for a sec, because I see that you are a <laughs> fan of that, as well as Batman. Is that right, Drea? Well, I, I'm going to show you something. Oh, I've seen that. Oh, oh you've seen this. Well, I haven't. <laughs> That's awesome. I joined the Empire five years ago. <laughs> and can we tell the audience what we just saw? <laughs> they don't know what we saw. Are you, are you allowed to say? Yes. Okay. I just showed everybody in this room uh, an Imperial tattoo on my shoulder. Right. <laughs> and it is awesome. Thank that you. That's pretty awesome. But it's Imperial. It's the bad guys. What is up with that? <laughs> I mean, I don't mind, uh, you know, the bad guys. <laughs> you know. Darth Maul is probably my 
favorite visual character in the Star Wars universe because <laughs> that red and black face is just amazing to me. But why? What what attracts you or attracted you or brought you to the dark side? Young Padme. I, I know this. Now we're gonna we're going there, right? <laughs> Can I, we? I, I Can, is it okay? Yeah, this? that's okay. fine. Can I, and, and I think Linda will understand this. This in the same way that we love the Joker. Mm-hmm. I love Star Wars villains. They're complex. They're fascinating. They're intriguing. We don't want to be like them. They're telling us through. Um, the medium of of sci-fi or comics or animated series, they're telling us that this is what society, this is how society goes bad, right? Right. Um, <laughs> morally, socially, ethically, all all these reasons why we should not want to be like these figures or characters, um, and yet we're we glorify them and we idolize them and, and there is that connection to them. So I, I think if my psychologist brain right now is saying it is a safe way, it's a healthy way for us to be close to things that are subversive. Yes. Well, I've got your new podcast, by the way, after Arkham, Arkham Sessions, The Curasant Couch. Oh, I like that. <laughs> you can have it. It's- I mean, there's a lot of villains to explore, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, there right. are. Was that a great uh, title? Because my questions have been great. Was that a great that title? That was a great title. <laughs> well, I paused because I think this week I'm allowed to say that I'm going to start a podcast with um, my wonderful friend and co-host Amy Ratcliffe called Lattes with Leia. Oh, and it will be... Star- Yes, obviously. Yes, so it will be a Star Wars podcast. By the way, I had no idea. I just really (laughs) because now I really like your title. But we've done all the press release; everything's up for okay. So we can't change it. All right, you were that close. You know, it could be a segment. (gasps) It could be a segment. The Coruscant Couch. Yes. There you go. All right, that's what I do here. All right, Star Wars, and then. The movie, you down Force Awakens? How oh. we? How you feel? Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Did I don't you wait care. Wait in line? Did I wait in line? Um, did you're I wait also in line? you're a cosplayer too. Is that what I've heard? I. It's a strobe light effect. We've got lights <laughs> flickering. I might have a seizure. Um, I am a cosplayer. I I do dress up in costumes, and actually. The very first costume that I wore, like uh, a fandom-related costume that at the time I did not know was cosplay, was my own Jedi character. Was that in the 1997 in the... release of the it re-release was... of the movie? <laughs> I've done some research. I feel like you have my, like, I don't know, my biography. <laughs> and I, I didn't know that I shared this with anybody, but yes, that is that is uh, what I how I entered into the world of like costume wearing and cosplay. But at the time I did not know about cosplay. I just thought I'm so aligned with this, (laughs) this franchise that I want to be a part of it. I'm going to dress up as my own Jedi character. Awesome. Have you cosplayed as any Batman characters before? I have. (gasps) Who? (laughs) I have dressed up as a couple of characters. I did like a rate. I I did a Lady Riddler <gasps> character, nice. which I'll show you the photo of. And then um, 
I've done Huntress two or three times. Wow. I did like a steampunk nice. version of Huntress. Oh, I bet that was And awesome. two weeks ago, I did more of a classic version right. of Huntress. Cool. We have to see these pictures. I know. I will send them to <laughs> but you. that's okay. awesome. And uh, so the movie you loved. Yes. <laughs> and you're excited for where the direction of the franchise is going. Is that an accurate statement? Or... I feel like I'm on the stand <laughs> and that my you... words will could be used against me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was very, very happy with The Force Awakens. I felt that it it really was able to capture the feel, mm. the feelings, all the feelings of the original trilogy and introduce new characters and um, and and just tell a really great story. I I think the story was very familiar. Oh yeah, very familiar, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that that part of it. Yeah, well, hey, my kids loved it, and I think <laughs> that was what the audience or the what Disney hoped to uh, to do was to capture the imaginations of a, of a new generation of fans to experience the same kind of or similar energy in the theater and then basically hook them for life. So kudos. <laughs> um, London, sorry yes. to sidetrack. But no, it's fine. This so is all great. <laughs> wow. That's my screen. <laughs> we're looking at screensavers here. If you guys knew what we were looking at, you would see Adrea is legit. <laughs> All right. So, London. Batman. Let's talk Batman. Okay. What are we doing here? Well, let's... Well, we're we're going to look at five different uh, relationships that Batman has with different characters in his mythos. And we're going to dive into kind of the driving forces between how they act with one another and we'll talk about certain stories that you can read or if, whether it's tv or film and you can see and kind of dive into the mind of batman and his world so i think trying to kind of to start it we should just talk about batman himself and look at the character bruce wayne and you talk about the the animated series and of all of the different characters, I know Batman is perhaps your favorite superhero, maybe, but was he one that compared to other characters like Superman or Flash or Wonder Woman that you can kind of go deep into his mind and kind of see why he dresses up like a giant bat and goes out and fights crime? Because usually there's some type of tragedy with all heroes whether it's a small scale or a large one, like witnessing his parents' death at a very young age, and that triggered him to swear that he would avenge his parents' death. But now, being Bruce Wayne and being the billionaire philanthropist, he has all of these resources, and he could do many wonders with Wayne Enterprises and all of his philanthropy, but he decides to become Batman. Where do you think that? Uh, like, I, why didn't he just start an orphanage? Or right, exactly. Some kind of mental health agency. Yes, because institute. I know we all know, okay, this is comic books. He's supposed to be a superhero. He wears the cape and the cowl and everything. But you don't really stop to think, well, why isn't he using all of the other resources? Instead of making grappling guns and batarangs and using all of his resources for that, why did he decide to dress up 
do you think there's something behind that that isn't really i don't know kind of that was more than a bat experience right right i mean what why is that that yeah. might go beyond just the comic book of well he needs to be a superhero and, and dresses up right i think that's part of the intrigue of of batman as a character that there's something that hasn't been resolved with him mm-hmm. that he's not integrated his good side his bad side his his loss um you could say he hasn't reconciled um his trauma you know, you could say, and I think there are multiple ways to to kind of perceive him as a superhero. And my favorite um, my favorite way to explore this is to look at his three personas: Batman, the vigilante who goes out at night and kicks butt and dresses up and has his tool belt and is um, absolutely freed. And absolutely on a mission, right? He's very determined. He's right. very resilient. Then you have Bruce Wayne, who's the, that's the social persona, right? The billionaire, the playboy, the yes. guy who has to be a little bit standoffish and detached. He's a certain way with women. And he has this reputation that's not exactly great, uh, depending on, on what you're reading. Sometimes he's a, can we swear on the show? Sometimes he's um, an a-hole. Yeah, there you go. Can that's I fine. say <laughs> Um, and, and then there's Bruce and I say that with, I'm not saying at all that he has multiple personality disorder or anything like that. I'm saying that he has these personas or he has these, he has these identities that haven't been fully integrated into one personhood. So Bruce, I would say is the, is the closest you can get to his personhood. Bruce is the guy Alfred knows. Bruce is the guy Dick Grayson knows. He's the guy who is emotional and vulnerable and um and has desires and wishes and would probably probably acknowledge that he hasn't resolved his trauma and he has a lot of guilt and he is um i think the most fascinating of the personas but insists on uh, on having these separate fragmented identities the masked superhero the social billionaire, uh, brilliant uh, playboy, and that kind of keeps him from really um, addressing his his past, his history. How would he address if he didn't have that? I mean, what would he do? What do you envision would be options for him to address the past? Well, part of your question has the assumption that what he's doing is maladaptive. Mm. And so I don't know. You know, that's the other thing that I don't have definitive answers. Is what he's doing as Batman unhealthy for him psychologically? And some some people even ask me, like, well, is is Batman crazy? Mm-hmm. Um, and usually my answer is, well, you have to define crazy first. Like, we can't have that conversation <laughs> until you right. I was going to say, I don't right. think that's a very scientific word. <laughs> I, another great comment. <laughs> exactly. You're just killing it today, right, Adam. Yeah. What do you know? Um, but I, I, there are some instances where I'd say, well, sometimes Batman is a healthy outlet. Sometimes you could say it's, it's his way to be pro-social and... In my world, we would call it post-traumatic growth, that he's found a way to recover 
he's found a way to recover from his trauma by taking all of those anxieties and insecurities and fears and directing that towards something that helps others. Hmm. Did I not really answer your question? No, you, you got you got there. I'm just thinking of <laughs> other great questions. Um, so I don't know if you have one you want to follow up with, London. No, that that's that's great actually. And I've I don't know. I've always thought about Batman, like you said, is what him as Batman and what he does as a vigilante is that good? Because even though he is fighting for justice and fighting the criminals and the bad guys, in a sense, he kind of goes, he's, he teeters on the edge of being good and bad. And I think he even realizes that in stories. But do you think that in a general sense, because other characters like in the Justice League, they'll say that or see Batman as kind of a bad guy himself. Do you think it's more that for him, he sees it as good, but to the masses, maybe Batman as a vigilante is 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 bad for Gotham or for wherever he's fighting. Do you mm-hmm. think that that would be something that maybe Batman, what he does, is bad? But I guess in his own mind, him being being a vigilante in the way that he goes out yeah. to the night for him that is for him kind of in a healthy way to get out all that aggression and everything inside him that he can't as like you said as Bruce Wayne or even Bruce right and I think you're getting at something that I've talked about on on the Arkham sessions that there's a part of him that kind of wants to be bad and I don't mean that like and I truly mean like there's a part of him that has figured out that if he can be a superhero or if he can be Batman um I have, I have some trouble calling Batman a superhero. Um, yes. <laughs> if you call him a hero, if he, if he engages as, as Batman and follows the mission and follows the standards that he's, he's sort of um, self-imposed uh, around that persona, then he has the excuse to engage in a number of antisocial, dangerous, high-risk type things. And we'll talk about this when we talk about some of the characters we're talking about on the show. But what I mean by that is um, in the same way that we feel a rush um, when we join the military, when we uh, become cops, when we um, engage in dangerous... uh, you know, even if it's just high risk behavior or dangerous behavior, when we do those types of things, and sometimes we do those types of things and we help others, but when we do those types of things, we get close to um, what could be, um, what I would say is like sensation seeking, high mm-hmm. risk, potentially um, even endorphin endorphins, like that rush, that feeling of, of thrill. And there's something about Bruce that needs that and there's some people personality wise Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people (laughs) but there's some people that seek those experiences and I want to be very careful to say like those aren't bad things that's not Mm -hmm. a bad trait to have Um, but we will talk about how that in excess can get us into trouble and there are certain villains who have um, have too much of that trait and and then do get into trouble Mm -hmm. and I think that to go back to Batman he likes to be very close to that. And so others might interpret that as him being slightly immoral or breaking laws or um, or even being 
an anti-hero. And I, you know, I can't really argue against that. Okay. Yeah. I haven't figured out how to make this question so great, <laughs> but I think I am going to touch on something that I need help with, and maybe you can help me ask a, even a better question. Uh, so Batman maintains this line of violence where he will basically beat the snot out of you, but yet not kill you. He doesn't kill the Joker, but every time he's about to, he decides not to. Most people think, just get it done. Get it over with. It, it solves a lot of the problems. He's not coming back after that. Do you think it's important that Batman maintains that separation of violence to the point of no death? I don't know if that made sense, but do you understand what I'm saying? That his rule of like not the same killing. thing with Spider-Man. Right? Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't kill. <laughs> they don't kill, but they're doing basically everything up to that point. <laughs> and is it is it is it an artificial line? Do you think if that he does cross the line and does kill, it is a slippery slope? Or do you think he could make an exception? Do you think that affects his psyche in any way if he does cross that line? Do you think it's important that he maintains that line for him to keep his sanity um, or control? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think that it's so important for him to not kill and he tends to have uh, black and white thinking or black or white thinking, depending on how you want to look at it, all or nothing thinking, those types of um, extreme cognitive um, constructs. So he wouldn't kill even the worst villain that exists, one who could potentially um, harm and kill other people in the future, right? Like right. one could argue that Batman could prevent other deaths simply by killing the Joker. Um, but it's something that he won't do. He won't cross that line. Yet, I mean, if we even just take the animated series, he tortures a lot of people. He, like, <laughs> basically rams the Batmobile all over town. But like, I, I've even, in, when we revisit these episodes, we'll just see how much destruction there is. <laughs> he could, like, by accident, just run people over right. the way that he drives. Um <laughs> And he doesn't seem to care about that level of recklessness. He doesn't seem to care about um, his lack of control in terms of violence. But um, it's a very hard line. He he just won't cross it. And I think that it's important for the character. You know, obviously, with all the representations and versions, this is something that has been, I don't know, London, if you want to, Talk, speak to that but that seems to be a pretty consistent feature right no definitely and so Batman and Joker can be our first uh, oh. <laughs> thing Adam kind of jumped right into it that's fine too because that's what we're gonna talk about well I anyway. know we have talked about that. yeah we have Batman, we've talked in about the early before. part of his career right 1939 mm -hmm. did kill right in the for his first year by himself before Dick Grayson was introduced, he used a gun and he killed and he was that Pulp Fiction dark character that Bob Kane Bill Finger created. And I know that kind of 
became less and less once Robin was in the picture and he was there to bring a younger audience into comics and lighten Batman. He's kind of that levels Batman's dark side. He kind of gives that balance to him almost, the Batman and Robin dynamic. Um, so kind of almost just looking at that, that's where Batman and Dick Grayson relationship come in. And, of course, Dick Grayson was Robin for four decades until the 80s where, and I guess we can kind of talk about that, that uh, Dick Grayson, he wanted to have his own persona because he felt that even though as Robin, even though he grew up and he graduated high school and he went to college, that him as a crime fighter, he felt under Batman's shadow. He wasn't his own, I guess, hero, and that was that's where he led to joining the Teen Titans and he became Nightwing. Mm -hmm. And then just moving forward, him being the persona Nightwing and then going into the 90s with Batman Nightfall and after Bane broke Bruce Wayne, Batman's back for a short period of time in Prodigal, um, Dick Grayson took up the Batman costume and there's a lot and anytime you see it in comics there's in prodigal and even in 2009 when after final crisis dick grayson becomes batman in the batman and robin series with um damian wayne bruce wayne's mm -hmm. son as robin he struggles with being batman because he doesn't he there's a lot of different comics that show that he doesn't want to become Batman or become the man that Bruce Wayne is because I always felt that Dick Grayson was more optimistic about his crime fighting and being a quote-unquote vigilante even though he kind of grew from the same ashes that Bruce Wayne did. He witnessed the death of his parents and that's when he was trained by Bruce and I think that Dick Grayson's an interesting character just because he wants his own persona and yet he's put into these situations where he has to be Batman the one person that almost casts this shadow over him and kind of dominates him being the hero that he wants to be and with that and then him I always see Dick Grayson as a very humble character and even though he thinks Batman is more he can cast a shadow he looks up to him and I always see them as a kind of father son dynamic mm -hmm, and, for sure um and so I was just wondering what you thought about just how Dick Grayson takes on his personas as a hero and kind of tries to step away from being kind of a darker character's Batman because he he fights crime and he fights the bad guys but it's never as violent or as um really difficult or or dark as batman does it mm -hmm. yes and i think that part of that is because batman has imposed that perspective um you know onto dick grayson in a way like there are many um conversations they'll have it, i'm thinking about just the animated series as well mm -hmm. as um some of the comics where uh <laughs> Thinking of All Star Batman and Robin, where yes. <laughs> it's just crazy line where uh, Bruce Wayne uh, tells Alfred like he Dick Grayson should be eating rats or something because that's what he did, right? And we're like, no, you didn't. You totally did not eat rats <laughs> in the basement by yourself in the dark. Don't say that. But I think it's it's so funny. It's kind of part of his um, perspective that he had it hard and. Right. And I went to school with bare feet, walking <laughs> uphill, uphill both in the snow. ways. 
Yeah, it's kind of like that, um, you know, he wants Dick Grayson to have the same hardships getting to, to you know, being able to wear that uh, the cape and cowl and, 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 you know, taking on that mantle. I think he wants he wants Dick Grayson to have that hardship. But at the same time, he doesn't believe that anybody could do it like he does. Right. And part of that is that he is in pain. I mean, truly, I think that part of it is that he doesn't believe anyone has experienced the pain, the same pain that he's experienced. And so, and to be clear, I don't think he wants Dick Grayson to have, to have that same pain. I mean, he took, he took, um, he took him under his wing because he wanted to care for him and he wanted him to have a better future than he had. And so there's that interesting dynamic Right. I think, by the way, I brought this up on other podcasts that I just think it's kind of weird that Batman or Bruce Wayne brought keeps on bringing in these kids and they're young and the child endangerment issues are right there that no one talks about. I mean, that's the real problem. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I would totally call pr- Child Protective Services <laughs> on this guy. He he does put them in danger, and he questions it. You know, I, I think he's aware, um, especially when he takes on a new Robin, he has those those thoughts. Am I putting? Am I giving this kid a better life, or am I actually shortening his life? Yes. And um, and those are realistic thoughts. I, I I think that part of him wants to offer. Um, Robin, whatever version, whichever version of Robin, he wants to offer him something fulfilling and something meaningful. And it's because he hasn't reconciled what happened to him. What he's doing is fulfilling and meaningful, but not completely. And so he's like, has these redos with, with these children. Um, and I think it works for some. I, th- I actually think that Dick Grayson came out the other side really healthy Mm-hmm. And and I think you mentioned a lot of reasons why that's the case. There's this rejection of having to be exactly like right. Bruce Wayne. Um, and then there are cases like Jason Todd where it didn't work out so well. Yes. And that's another relationship that I wanted to touch upon because Jason Todd became the second Robin. I know a lot of people know him as Red Hood and just jump to that. But he was the second Robin after... Dick Grayson was Nightwing, and he was, at least after the post-crisis, because when he was first debuted, he was almost a carbon copy of Dick Grayson in the comics, but then they made him this reckless orphan that Bruce eventually takes in and trains him to become the second Robin, but in that sense, he was very different from from Grayson. He wasn't that humble kid. He was He had his own mind and was really reckless and was it was a pain in in Bruce's side a lot of times but then in 1989 when the Joker killed Jason Todd in a death in the family um that really took a toll on Batman Bruce and even though in that same time in comics the killing joke came out and then Joker shoots Barbara Gordon and and she's Batgirl and all that happened. But just with Jason alone, he always carried that guilt. And he carried that up until we see Jason again in Batman Hush in 2002. So it was over a decade where Batman will still still be referenced, Death in the Family, Joker beating him with a crowbar, then the warehouse explodes and, and all of that. He takes on that guilt that he didn't save him, that he didn't rescue him in time, that it's his fault. And even in, like, 
part four of Death and Family, there's this great panel where they're inside the courthouse and Bruce Wayne is there and he sees, he's Bruce Wayne in his civilian wear, and then he sees Joker and they look at each other and he just says that he just has this feeling that this will always continue, this will always go on. And he, and I think for him, seeing the person that killed his almost adoptive child and he carries that guilt and he feels that he didn't save him that's another thing of well he could just he should go and kill the joker that's just something that kind of comes up i think in that comic because after jason's dead you would think that after that and then after everything else he does when the killing joke and to gordon and to barbara that he would try to cross that line and kill him but he doesn't but jason todd definitely brings out the the kind of guilt that Batman has. And I think he carries that same guilt for some reason with his parents. It's kind of referenced that even the death of his parents, he feels that he's responsible for. And he kind of carries that burden that, okay, well, the only way I can avenge them is to go out into the night. So I think Jason's death amplifies that. And then once he returns and he's resurrected and then he comes back in a Judd Winnick's, uh, under the Red Hood in that in that arc, and he becomes the Red Hood, which is influenced off of Joker's first costume, which I think in itself is. Would you? I mean, just going off of that, do you kind of see that as something that? I mean, Jason Todd is wearing the costume of his killer in a way. He's wearing yeah. the first costume of him. Where does that Look kind at you, of Doctor London? <laughs> Well, I mean, I've always thought about that because it's kind of twisted in a way. He it is. He's wearing the costume of someone that murdered him. So where does, I mean, where does that come from, do you think? Is that something? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think you could look at it in many ways, but I sort of see it as um, I'm going to take control over my history. I'm going to take control over my trauma and I'm going to. I mean, in in many ways, in many ways, Batman did the same thing. I'm going to take the image that frightens me. I'm going to take the image that um, put me in a vulnerable place. And I'm going to um, kind of take ownership over that and utilize that for my advantage. And so I I think that what what Jason Todd did made a lot of sense. Right. I got one. (laughs) (laughs) Bring it. I want your expert opinion. On something, Do you, so you mentioned that's good that Batman has the line that he doesn't kill. Well, I mean, would you agree that it's good that somebody doesn't kill? I agree. <laughs> but do you think there's more psychological damage that would be created by killing Joker versus all the stuff that Joker ended up doing because Batman did not kill him? So to answer that, I really have to go. I, I really have to talk about the Joker. Do okay. it. We can, yes. can I, Get can there. I, can yeah, I let's, go there? Yeah, let's just go, go there. there. Let's go. Are we ready? That's that, yes. <laughs> Uh-oh. It's getting dark. <laughs> Do we want to turn that one light off again? Yeah. Um, Mason, hook it up. <laughs> no, no. Okay. There, oh. you there you go. I like that. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that I don't think my perspective is unpopular or uncommon. I, I think that um, beyond the need to have the story continue, obviously in the comics, we need Joker to be alive. But I think that I think that the Batman needs Joker to stay alive for multiple reasons. 
Um, one, of course, is that if he kills the Joker, he just becomes the thing he hates. Yes. Um, and he crosses the line. And I think that his mental health is in question. I think he would, he, he really engages in a lot of subversive acts. Um, one would say that uh, he engages in a lot of transgressions. He breaks the law, all these things. But I think for him, if he kills somebody deliberately, violently, intentionally, um, passionately, that he would become insane, his version of what ins insanity is. Mm -hmm. um, and then my second comment about this is probably less popular, which is that I think that Batman wants a closeness with the Joker that if he were, if he were to kill him um, or if, if he were to help Arkham Asylum get better, um, you know, some, a better lockdown system because mm. <laughs> he keeps getting out. Um, <laughs> if if the Joker weren't in his life, there would be some issues. I, I think that the Joker is his way of getting close to subversion, getting close to danger, getting close to being antisocial himself. Like there's some participation in being violent, in being a villain in engaging in immorality. Mm -hmm. There's a closeness that Batman needs and he gets it because he gets to punch the Joker in the face. He gets to hear the vile things the Joker says. He gets to have the Joker stab him uh, or at least try to stab him with knives and like all these all these dangerous, thrilling things like that the that Joker rush brings. you were yeah. talking about. Before. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the Joker brings that into his life time and time again mm -hmm. and and Batman thrives on that, but he doesn't want to become what the Joker is. He just wants to be close to it. It is an outlet for him, and it fulfills something pretty dangerous in him. And I want to be careful not to say that, well, that means that he's, um, you know, he has antisocial personality disorder. Or it doesn't mean that he himself is a criminal. Mm -hmm. it, it simply means that there is a part of him that wants to participate in that, and that's what the Joker does for him. No, I, I completely agree on both of those points. And it's interesting to see that Batman, like you said, it's almost like he has a need for Joker. And even though Joker has hurt his family in many ways and even hurt Batman himself, I think that he needs that. And then, But it's odd to kind of see on the flip side, seeing how Joker responds to having Batman in his life because there there are different stories you can look at that kind of observes this like one of my favorites is in um, Legends of the Dark Knight it's called Going Sane and it's a five issue arc and it's about when Joker believes that Batman is dead and he says well if Batman's dead then there's no reason for me to become the Joker and he go and he gets a job and he fixes his skin and he has a normal life he gets a girlfriend and everything and he stops being the joker and then in the end when he finds out that batman survived the explosion of the place he snaps and he turns back and becomes a joker again and they yeah. start fighting all over again and it's stories like that or even and then you look at stories like uh superman um Emperor Joker, when he gets all of the powers of Mitzel Kipsel, or however you pronounce Mr. it. Mr. Mitzelplex? Yeah. 
I think. I don't know. <laughs> is that the guy who's got to, you got to say his name backwards? Yes. Mixoplex. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Mix, yes Mixoplex? Yeah, okay. Know, I watch my <laughs> super friends. <laughs> but Joker gains all, if not almost all of his powers. And in the book, he every day kills Batman a different way and he tortures him. And Batman goes through almost a hundred different deaths and it mentally scars him until Joker loses his powers and Superman has to actually take all of the memories of Batman being tortured for him to survive because they were so scarring and so damaging after, even though Joker stopped, that Superman thought he would never be the same Bruce Wayne Batman again. And that's actually something that Superman did that Batman didn't have any knowledge of. But... Then the normal story is that Joker fights him and he doesn't want to kill him or there are things that say um, that he needs him to be able to do his own chaotic things. And it's odd that Batman is like almost the antithesis of Joker and they almost have this yin and yang kind of relationship. But sometimes you see Joker as he for some reason wants to cross that line maybe he wants batman to cross that line as well and i think that's something he thinks that if he can push batman to a limit that he wants him he wants batman to kill him because he'll know that he won i think if batman crosses that line uh and kills joker joker knows that he in the end won because batman did something that he claims that he would never do and he would make them that that violent almost criminal like everyone else would joker know that because joker would be dead and that brings up another question right and (laughs) (laughs) well well but i get what you're saying like he knows it in the process of dying right i mean this is such a a morose (laughs) topic but which is why we turn the lights down um but i i agree on that point that there is that you know what does winning mean to the Joker. Right. It it doesn't necessarily mean living. I mean, it really is a twisted it and you'll you'll know this um from the very first um time we saw the Joker. Mm-hmm. He was really fascinated with his own death. He accidentally stabs I mean it's a weird story. He stabs himself and it's hilarious to him. Yeah. He's <laughs> he's like cackling about it and 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 even comments like how funny it is that he almost killed himself. Um, and I and I think that 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 uh, I don't know the way that he sees his own even his own death is um, is intriguing and funny to him. Like there's this sense that he has um, turned violence and death and evil just into something that is a big joke to him. And and it's fr- I mean it's really frightening if you think about it. But mm-hmm. I, I believe for him winning doesn't mean that he lives winning means that that he really gets to um that the joker gets to participate in in some real thrilling even more thrilling stuff that um uh, that batman offers and i and i don't think anyone else can offer that i think batman is truly the only person who can offer that high level um thrilling experience that the joker wants Mm-hmm. Right. Clearly, Joker is an extreme representation of a personality that I'm sure you've studied, right? Yes. On some level, whether it be in research or books. Yes. What does that person who may not be as extreme as Joker, 
look like in the real world? I think that some of the traits that we've been talking about um, are not too uncommon. Um, again, someone who's a risk taker, someone who's um, sensation seeking, will engage in um, obviously in criminal violent acts, but but not for that secondary gain. I mean, there's obviously people who um, who will steal or who will commit crimes for that secondary gain, but the primary gain is the experience of thrill. It, it is truly neurobiological if you think about it. It's really about the participation in something subversive. It's that, that experience in the moment, and it's fleeting, which is why it can get worse and worse. Mm. And so those people we would typically find in jail. We should hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and what is there? Is there a person that maybe we know like Charles Manson or some serial killer or something that is maybe close to a what real the, life joke, a real life joke, the realest <laughs> Does life that joke. exist or is Joker so extreme? We can't even think of someone in the media or someone just in, in general that would kind of be on any type of level that Joker was there is. a case study about someone that was close to being as extreme as Joker? Well, I think I think that you're. This is another wonderful question. <laughs> Thank you. So I want to say two things. One would be you're spot on to say that most that anybody who would have these traits would would typically have done something to get incarcerated because um, they're just that out of control. But um, but the answer really is that no, I haven't really thought about a real life person who would be the closest thing to the Joker. And part of that is because I have the Joker. Like the reason, the sole reason why on, on our show we talk about fictional characters is that it allows us to talk about real serious, um, sometimes traumatic, sometimes um, painful things that we talk about, but we do it with characters that don't exist in real life to allow ourselves to get close to it, to allow ourselves to really feel more comfortable doing that. And, and, and for me to talk about um, to talk about some of these real experiences that, that I've had without revealing who I've worked with, um, which is to protect their confidentiality. And so part of that exercise is to, um, to really focus on fictional characters. But my co-host, Brian Ward, will um, occasionally choose a case that exists or existed in history. So for instance, if we talked about um, Killer Croc, for instance, mm -hmm. he will bring up a case of um, Lobster Boy, I think was his case for that episode. Uh, this real kid who had like a, a physical deformity and then joined the circus and, and ended up becoming a criminal. So um, so we will on occasion select a, a real case and kind of draw that to, um, to the traits and the personalities that we're talking about. But it's rarer to do that. What about Two-Face? Is that more of a realistic, uh, I mean, of course it's a fictional character, but the kind of split personality thing, is that, can you relate that more to the real world? Cause, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And We've, I, yeah, oh no. Go. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, when we covered um, Two-Face, part one and part two, mm -hmm. Those are great shows, yes. by the way. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they're like the, the best. best. Yeah. 
we really were able to deconstruct this character and to think about, I mean, to get to get back to that question about real life people, we really did talk about real life experience, experiences of that character and that what, um, amazingly, what the animated series did for us was to give us a likable guy from the beginning, right? Right, a yes. A decent, very smart attractive yes very charming um, guy a, a, yeah. a dude who would probably be successful and then something really bad happened to him mm-hmm. and so that allowed us to talk about how um first how personal experiences um and traumatic experiences can really shape a, a person mm-hmm. but also that for him he was dealing with his um his angry side, his tendency to become real, really irritable and irrational. Big, bad, hard. Yes. <laughs> so in that, um, in that story, he was seeing, I, I think I giggled when I first saw this, he was seeing like a psychoanalyst or a psychodynamic yeah. psychoanalyst, some, <laughs> someone who was like probably doing hypnosis or hypnotherapy, which I don't do for the record. Okay. I don't do that. <laughs> Um, and what we learned is that he has this other side to him. And so we clarified on the show, the difference between multiple personality disorder, which is no longer a term. It's now dissociative identity disorder. DID is, is what the clinical term now is for that condition. But we talked about that potentially being what's happening to him. But we also talked about a more realistic, um, presentation which is that he might have bipolar disorder okay and so his outbursts and his inability to control himself and his real his mood swings for instance were getting in the way of his functioning and that kind of opened the door to talking about um episodes of mania episodes of um you know mood episodes where somebody feels like they're not really themselves and other people notice that and how that can really interfere uh, with someone's normal functioning. Right. And in a Batman annual in the early 90s, Andrew Henfer wrote it. He had, it was a, a an origin for Harvey Dent and they gave him bipolar disorder or they diagnosed him with that. And yeah. it said that him dealing with the trauma of his abusive father kind of triggered the, that and made it worse. And then once he was scarred with the acid, it all just came to the surface. So that actually would, at least they've, they've touched upon that in comics. So yeah. I see why that would, that would make sense even in the real world. So, but of course, Two-Face is still a, an exaggerated character, especially just his, how he looks. But that's all. It's almost just what he is on the inside, just literally on the surface, on the outside. But there are people that suffer from bipolar disorder and things like that now. So that's, I think, of course, Two-Face or Harvey Dent is more of a realistic character, of course, than Joker will ever be. Yeah. But bringing that type of character into the Batman mythos and you always see Batman or Bruce Wayne he always wants to help Harvey he always thinks that he could have saved him somehow or he or he was his friend before when he was Harvey Dent when he was the charming guy and he was friends with Bruce Wayne and then once he turned into Two-Face it was almost like he couldn't go back it wasn't even that his mind was split because 
all of his actions all kind of revolved him taking the two-face action. Mm-hmm. It, you would think that, oh, half of him, especially with the coin, when he always would flip the coin and one is one side is scarred and one isn't. But in the end, it really doesn't matter whether he has the coin or not because I think it's just he's just so traumatized that Two-Face kind of takes over everything, but he kind of calls himself Two-Face because of the way he looks and maybe he wants to have that type of rationale that, oh, well, if I flip the coin, this makes sense for me to do something bad. But then again, you're flipping the coin saying, well, I'm going to let this decide to do bad things when you know, well, this is bad, so you shouldn't do it. So, right. yeah. But, yeah, that, so I would think Two-Face, yeah, would be a more realistic person that you may see walking down the street than, of course, Joker. But I think Batman deals with different villains in, in different ways. And those are two, well, Joker's the extreme, and I think Harvey Dent's more on the more calmer side. But, so we've talked about heroes like Dick Grayson and then kind of going into Jason Todd and then going to the villains. But I think the one that's in the middle that I always see is Catwoman because her, herself, she's an anti-hero or at least seems like one, I, I would say. And we can look at, usually when we look at Catwoman, we can look at the romantic relationship, which we've talked about on the show before. We've talked about love interest, just the fact that in the end, Batman, can he really have a healthy, solid romantic relationship? Or is he too damaged in a way to have that type of relationship with someone like that in a romantic way? What do you think? Do you think that that's possible that even Catwoman, who's kind of a same type of personality and they kind of have that same dark figure about them and just the way that, I mean, they are in their own vigilante ways, that would be someone that at least a lot of people say that Batman would be suited for if he had to be with someone or he was with Talia, who in herself, she is a and Mason loves Talia, by the way. That's his favorite. So he. But she's another example where those, I mean, those two characters are <laughs> in their own way a just, good suit for Batman. <laughs> Wait, can I just ask which version of Talia? Oh, in the animated series. Animated series. The, okay. That's, yeah. yeah. The animated series. So, oh, yeah. Okay. Totally. I, you can hear me rant on the previous episode <laughs> if you want. But I just want to say real quick, is it possible, you know, with the certain somewhat that he could have you know, the real relationship, if they understand him, if they know everything about him already, and in fact mirror him in many ways. <laughs> we should have, uh, like, a dating show where it's, like, the three or four ladies and then uh, Bruce Wayne, and he asks all these questions. And what was that Is called, the, the dating show? Um, dating the dating game. The dating game. game. Uh, yeah. but, but generally, yes, I... I am one of those people I, I do think that that he could find somebody. He could partner with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um I say somebody because I don't you know, I, I don't know whether that person is uh costumed uh, multi identity person or male or female or like I just don't know mm-hmm. what he needs, truly. Right. But I would say that um my guess is that it would be someone like Talia. Could be someone like... <laughs> yes. You, you are my favorite guest. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
um, could be someone like Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that Catwoman has it carries some baggage with her that she needs to resolve. And right. so, you know, I'm not at all saying that people can't get together if they have baggage or if they have um, right. things that they re- need to reconcile, but that there's something about, and we actually covered this on our show. Catwalk was a recent Catwoman mm-hmm. episode. Um, there's something that she shared with him about her need to engage in a criminal lifestyle and for her, it was about being free. It was about being able to be Catwoman anytime she wanted. It right. was about being able to fulfill her desires and wishes. And the way that she did that was through um, through her Catwoman persona. And he didn't really seem to connect to that, which is bizarre because that's what he does. That's as what Batman. he does, right. Um, so so I, I think that... There is hope for him, and I think that there could be somebody that would be a great match for him. But I think that right now, if we can kind of take a snapshot of who he is, he still has to understand what truly Bruce. Now, if we talk about Bruce, Bruce has to understand who he is and what he needs as a person. Because oftentimes when he's pursuing Catwoman, or even when he's pursuing Talia, he's doing that as Batman. Right. And we all get really, really confused and in love when he's as Batman, you know. <laughs> but that's not his full identity. So I think that truly the person who he's who he's partnered with has to understand all of his personas, and he has to help that person integrate them to fully know, like, is you know, is this the person I want to be with? So it's it's a two way street. No, that that makes perfect that make sense. sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. So he needs someone that can take all of his, him instead of just the one side Batman or just the one side Bruce Wayne. And I don't know if we've really come across someone that fully does that. But like we said, Talia, it makes it's a like, new character what? to be written. <laughs> yes, that could totally happen in the future. But I think the closest we've gotten to is Talia or a Selena Kyle Catwoman type character. Mason, I don't know why you're so excited about (laughs) Bruce Wayne and Batman hooking up with Talia. I thought you wanted her for yourself. To clarify yet again that, um, you know, I think they are a good couple. Unfortunately, Talia at this point is way too damaged for a mere mortal like myself. But they are great for each other. And she does understand both aspects of, of Bruce and Batman. Okay. Well, I was just trying to hook you up. Man. That's all. Okay. Yeah. So I do have a question. Do you think, so Sopranos, it was awesome. Well, hold on. I'm, I'm getting somewhere. You got to work with me here. So, I'm sure he has point. I yeah, know I got a great point. Okay. One of the things that made Sopranos so great was that Tony would go see a therapist and it was it was awesome it was an insight into a gangster that or a mobster that had never been done before it was fascinating do you, why do you think they haven't done that with superheroes yet um see i was going somewhere you were. i, I kind of figured you were like, going that way I, no really i got it i got it you didn't <laughs> I've I've never seen The Sopranos. Oh man, it's good. Show. So it's, <laughs> no, uh, okay. It's good. So do you know what it is? You recommend you know? it. Yes, I'm familiar with 
um, the character, the psychologist who sees Tony Soprano. Right. I know a little bit about that, but I've never seen the show. It, it, I, I, that's surprising. <laughs> you know, I just think it would be fascinating to get your opinion on that because it does, it takes a genre that, you know, that is so common and in the minds of so many people and then flips it by actually putting a human side on this character who at times you're in favor of you're disgusted by you're intrigued by you're repulsed i mean there's so much there and yet he sits on a couch or in a chair and and you know basically has therapy i don't you know it's amazing it's it's so it's such a cool look into this character i am I just, as I sit here and we talk to you, I just can't believe that they haven't done that in comics. Why don't we see Spider-Man or Peter Parker have a confidential relationship with a psychologist and part of the dialogue during the comic book be him working through some of his issues? Well, for one, I would totally read these comics that you're talking about. Um, I, I would say that Part of the problem is that there is still some, there's a stigma around help seeking. There's misconceptions around therapy. And I think that for superheroes generally to be receiving some kind of mental health intervention would be to admit that there's something wrong with them. Um, now, of course, I I don't agree with that. I think all but of that's us. just a general view. Yes, and, and then yeah, that and people that's, have, and so then even then elaborate because you did touch on something. Because I'm sure people in the audience may have that same image or same right. stereotype. Right. Why do you think that that is wrong? Why or why is that an uninformed thought? Well, for one, we know that a lot of people have received help in many forms, whether it's medication or psychotherapy, behavioral therapy. Um, there are many, many different types of of interventions for folks that have um, any kind of mental health problem or mental health condition. And so I think that in our society, there's still, despite high rates of help-seeking, despite high rates of uh, psychotropic uh medication uh, in terms of intervention there there's still this this idea there's this negativity around it that if a person were to be receiving that kind of uh, psychiatric help that they they are admitting that something's wrong with them or they they're admitting that they're less than or that they're admitting that um, they have a dysfunction and part of the problem is the mental health field Sometimes, you know, we use words like illness, condition, psychiatric disorder, um, psychopathology. I mean, these are all things that I've studied for many years. And unfortunately, that kind of language can, uh, a lot of times, will exacerbate the notions of abnormal and normal. But when you really look at it, one or two people out of four people have a mental health condition or could benefit from mental health intervention. So it's actually not that abnormal. Right. I mean, it almost sounds like that anyone could really seek help. And I want to use a word 
that or words or phrase that actually makes it sound okay? Do you know, is yeah. there because I notice the way you talk, you say the word help, help. It's help seeking. It's is there something? I mean, because that maybe it's just marketing, you know, or <laughs> uh, or you know, I, I don't know if you know Frank Luntz, the word doctor, and he, you know, instead of uh, I think it was um, inheritance. Uh, he started using it or inheritance tax. I can't remember what it was, but he started calling it a death tax. So then people wouldn't want, I, I'm kind of lost in, but he, he basically <laughs> changes the way you right. think about things by using different words. Have you thought about words or phrases other than help seeking that people would feel comfortable? Like, Oh yeah, you know what? That wouldn't be bad. Well, it's, it's like if you said a mental massage, I'd say, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That right. sounds invasive, and I don't want that. Uh, okay. Well, I um, like massages. I don't do that, by the way. <laughs> right, right, it's not right. something that I do. Um, it, it is a challenge because, on the one hand, we want to be open and inclusive and welcoming and offer help to people who who would like some support. Um, and yet, part of our jobs is to diagnose Part of our jobs is to identify dysfunction. Part of our jobs involve um, identifying when mental health conditions can cause so much distress that, you know, a person can't work. A person needs family to be involved. A person needs to have that a drug be, uh, you know, taken away or um, lethal weapons being taken away so they don't harm themselves. So I want to be very serious about it as well. I, I don't want to create words that soften it because, um, you know, we're, we're talking about, I, I want to use words that are frank and clear. And furthermore, there is a lot of stigma around mental health conditions that I don't want to create words that take away from, I don't know, that, that will um, somehow eclipse the importance of those things. So, you know, we don't want to create new words for autism, for instance, because right. we don't want to, we, we don't want to, um, we don't want to muddy up or I'm trying to think of the right, right word right now. We, we don't want to, um, create more confusion about a condition that um, that really needs a lot more understanding, awareness, education, research. So we do want to use those labels. We do want to use those categories to help people who fall into those diagnoses get the right support, get the right help. And we just have to have a way to, to speak the same language and communicate about that. So you're, you're actually picking up on something that in the field is a point of contention and controversy. And, you know, most people have the right intention. Um, but at the same time, we don't create different words for cancer. We don't create different words for medical conditions that are neurobiological or physiological in nature. So we want to make sure that people are able to get the help that they need right well it i mean it almost sounds like if any if everyone theoretically can benefit from it right it is help it 
it's almost like an exercise. It, it helps you grow. It helps because you think on a daily, people go to yoga. They go to, they do these things to help their bodies on a daily basis maintain, be strong, and continue to be healthy. And that is, I think, the way that it should be thought about with regards to your profession and professions similar, which is it's to help maintain, to help grow, to help um, evolve, and to help, you know, um, I guess just health, mental health is not a negative word. It is, or not a negative phrase, it is actually a good thing because if you think about it like physical health, well, it's not so bad. Right. So, right. I, I agree with that. And yeah. so, what I've been doing more recently is trying to use the words mental health versus um, using words that are more pathological that would kind of categorize when, when it's unnecessary, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there are comics, for instance, that talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. There are comics, um, there are shows that talk about mental health. Jessica Jones, Daredevil, um, Suicide Squad looks mm-hmm. like they're going to be talking about yeah. mental health, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we don't necessarily have to say mental illness. I wonder if it's the word mental. I think maybe mind. Like, I remember as a kid, like, healthy body, healthy mind, you know? If I think about a healthy mind, I don't know. That's just my thought on so it. So mind health? Uh, no, Mindful a healthy health. mind. A healthy mind. Yes. Like I am. Oh, I specialize in healthy minds, healthy bodies. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I'm just trying to work it out with you guys, and we're in a little <laughs> session here, and I'm just figuring it all out. But I do feel it's important. I think that anyone out there um, you know, that's listening and that has any question – about this, you know, your field and uh, similar mental health fields, I think should explore. And I think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I th- Thank you. I, I just, the fact that you have a guest on your show that talks about mental health and talks about psychological science, and I really emphasize the science part of that, I really appreciate that you're interested in bringing me on board just to have this discussion. Right. So that's really inclusive and, and very open-minded. And I'm I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. No, thank you for coming on. It's always great to look at Batman in all different ways. And this yes. is definitely a great way to look at the characters that we all love and look at them on a more deeper level. And they're not just people on pages and panels there i mean there's there there's depth to them and so no this was this was great thank you so much for coming on and also i do want to you know that is clearly what this podcast is about the you know history of the batman but i do think we're also dealing with real world people and problems and issues and concerns and you know let's be honest the comic book world the geek culture world it's sometimes very isolating and it it's now becoming the culture where it's cool Mm -hmm. but that's taken a long time and there's been a lot of growth in individuals that they've had to experience in order to get to where we are now and we're still not there yet i mean i think uh drea your whole 
existence before you came out as the doctor of Batman. So, I mean, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but I'll, you, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, you, you had to come and work through some issues about, could you come out as a geek or a nerd or whatever you want to call it? Because you were worried about whether your peers would look down on that. And I think that that's probably what a lot of people who are are going through who love comic books, who love video games, who love uh, gaming and cards and and you know whatever we're talking about. So I think it's okay for them to you know the listeners and for others like us to reach out and to and to you know get some healthy minds uh, <laughs> mind exercise <laughs> mental exercise for mental health the and brain massage the bra- yeah <laughs> now that sounds good to me but you know i can understand how freaky or goofy that is to others <laughs> and invasive which was i thought a very good uh, description so i felt like maybe that wasn't the best uh, term so thank you for crushing that one immediately um drea where can people reach out to you i mean can people ask you questions yes yes these are these this is yet another great question (laughs) here's here's what i'm saying if you have similar questions um i don't know i feel like there could be some more questions that people might have the best way to interact with me is on twitter my handle is at arkham asylum doc and my TED Talk is Capes, Cowls, and Courage, which is available on YouTube. You can just look that up, look up my name. And my website is underthemaskonline.com, which hosts our podcast, The Arkham Sessions. And is there email available if people wanted to maybe have a private question for you? Yes. So there's a contact page on my website and people are more than welcome to use that to ask me a question privately. Good. Give cool. me what's that website again? Underthemaskonline.com. Okay. As it's spelled, right? Pretty yes. easy. Okay. Yes. Underthemaskonline.com. There you go. Okay. Well, thank you so yes, much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully you'll come back again, maybe for a suicide squad. I would oh, love that. That would be great. And if you ever need us to come help on your podcast <laughs> and ask great questions, uh, then let us know. Uh, London, anything yes. to report on before we break out? Well, let's see. This is Wednesday. So last night, the new Suicide Squad trailer came out, and it was – I loved it. I I have – I'm pretty optimistic about it. You got to see more of Jared Leto's Joker and Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn and the whole cast. And it was all to the tune of Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, which I love. I'm a huge Queen fan. So I, I'm i excited about it. And, you, and Drea, you said you saw it briefly. For, what did you think? I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for it. I feel like there are going to be some great themes in there about what it means to be a hero, what it means to be mm-hmm. a villain, um, what it means to be a misfit. Right. I just think there are all sorts of great, great topics that yeah. are going to come Yeah, I mean, the tagline is worst heroes ever. That's, yeah. that's great. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, that would, that would be great. And I know we didn't touch upon it and we're running out of time, but really quick, Harley Quinn and Joker, 
what is that? What, what, like, <laughs> what would you like label that as in a most? I would uh, need about. I would need two hours. I know, but I, I, w- know. I would say <laughs> so. And I've talked about this. Um, I can plug my show because we Please we talked do. about yeah. relationships, especially Harley and the Joker. And how it's much more complex. Of course, there's domestic violence involved, mm-hmm. but there's a complexity to it that I think deserves exploration in that um, there's something that they both benefit from being in that relationship. And Harley is another example of a person who is thrill-seeking, who really enjoys um, the rush of violence the rush of near-death experiences and so it's important to remember that when you have two people like that their relationship obviously is very volatile but it's hard to separate them because how else can they fulfill that need um so it is very unhealthy for them but at the same time there's there's something that um kind of they relate to each other in that way and i i appreciate that about them i still think there's something positive to say about those two but I tend to, uh, on the show, I'm I'm usually the one who's able to find something good in like the worst person. So sounds like Wanda. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he always says about me. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank, thank you, you for staying a little extra. We've obviously got a ton more questions, and maybe we should make this a part two at some point where we all get back together and talk more Batman. Sure. All right. It's a a deal. Yes. It's a deal. All right. Well, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the history of the Batman with London. I'd like to also let you know we've got some other cool programming going on. We've got the Disney Click podcast, Meltcast 3.0. We've got Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. He is interviewing Gerard Way, and that will be coming out soon, so please keep a lookout for that. We've also got On Some Hip Hop-ish. I'm not cussing, but it (laughs) is the S word. And that is where we talk about hip hop and the collision with nerd culture. So please check that out. You can go to meltcomics.com and get led that way. Also check out Audio Boom for all the shows that we have on the Meltdown Network. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week. And London, peace, love, and Batman. <laughs>